Tonight's text is going to be found in 1 Kings 10. If you could turn in your Bibles there to 1 Kings 10. And while you're turning there, I'd like to thank everyone who came out tonight. I'd like to thank Pastor Brian and Pastor Jonathan for giving me this opportunity. And while you turn there. Okay. Um, Marco Polo today is mostly known for his pool game. That when you close your eyes, you, you go in the pool, you close your eyes, and someone says Marco, the other person says Polo, and you try to tag. But it's often uh, terrible that that's happened since he was mo- one of the, probably the most important explorer who ever lived, especially in the Middle Ages. He went all the way east, further east than any other European did for hundreds of years, and he found uh, the kingdom of China. He found a kingdom unlike anything he's ever seen before with its vast riches. It's had a different cuisine, a different way of dress, a different language. And if you actually look back and study, what's very interesting to see, especially after he wrote his book called The Travels of Marco Polo, what's interesting to see in the reception is a lot of people in Europe thought he made the whole thing up, that China didn't really exist, and if it did, it wasn't that great as he said it was. They thought he exaggerated. There was no way that a kingdom all the way in the east where barbarians lived, lived in such a way. He was thought to be a sham, a a fraud, and no one really believed him, especially among the elite. But there's a legend has it that if you actually went to Marco Polo's manor in Italy and went to see him and came to his door, he would invite you in and wearing Chinese garb, giving you the food of China for dinner and showing you all the treasures that he had, proving once for all that he wasn't over-exaggerating. He was all that he said he was, and there really was a kingdom that existed like this. In today's text, we're learning about someone who also heard a lot of hearsay about a faraway kingdom. Uh, the queen of Sheba, she had heard that there was a kingdom called Israel that was far away, that had a king that was wiser than anyone who ever lived, and that there was so much gold there that silver was nothing. And that, most importantly, that there was a God that was the fountain and source of all this blessing. It had to hear like a lot of uh, old wives' tale to her. It had to hear like a lot of hype and over-exaggeration. And in, especially in our today's culture, we over-hype and use hyperbo- hyperbole way too much. We say everything's either the greatest this or the worst that. Everything's always being exaggerated. And most of the time, that leads us things to fail expectations, to fall below what they're, uh, they're supposed to be. And I find very rarely the things actually ever meet expectations, let alone exceed them. But here we have a pattern of faith in the Queen of Sheba. She's heard the expectations. She's heard the fame of King of Solomon. And she, in faith, goes to him and offers us a pattern of faith of someone who goes to the king, hears about him, goes to him, beholds him, worships him, and is blessed by him. And before I jump in, let's get a little background. I understand 1 Kings isn't probably everyone's most familiar book But what's happening in Kings right now is that Israel's in a golden age right now. This is the height of the kingdom of Israel. They have more land than they have ever possessed, and it's just going more and more and more. Uh, The writer of Kings says uh, there's more offspring than uh, than the sand of the seashore. It's as if all the promises God promised way back to Abraham are coming true. And also the blessings of Moses' covenant. Moses and Uh, Deuteronomy 28 says, if Israel keeps his law and his covenant, he will bless them. They'll be blessed when they go in. They'll be blessed when they go out. It seems as if finally all these blessings are being poured out on Israel. 
They have so much gold, silver is nothing. There's, they have the, king, the presence of God living among them in the temple. It's in a way that such has never been before. There's no mention of curse. There's no mention of idolatry. There's peace on every side. It even describes as each man being under his own fig tree. And that's, I think, pointing us back to the Garden of Eden. The writer of Kings is showing us Israel at this time as a new Eden where the presence of God is there. That there's, a, it's like a garden paradise all of a sudden. And those of us who know our Old Testament know that this isn't usually where Israel's at at the time. Israel is usually not doing this well. This is weird. That Israel is usually receiving the curses of God, not necessarily his bless, uh, the blessings of the covenant. So what's changed? What, where is all the, why did God all of a sudden open the floodgates of blessing now? Well, the answer lies in that now there is a son of David ruling over them. A son of David who loves wisdom of God more than he loves uh, the riches and power. A king who loves the Lord, and it's bringing about all the blessings. We don't, the writer of Kings doesn't necessarily ever tell us how good Israel's being right now. But the fact that they have a good king, it brings all the blessings. They're getting more and more land. They have shalom. It's, it's literally a part of Solomon's name in Hebrew. That peace has finally come. It's as if all of God's promises are becoming yes and amen in Solomon. But I don't think the writer of 1 Kings wants us to just focus on how great Solomon was. For you can just look at the, uh, in your Bible to the next section, uh, chapter 11, what the heading of that is. It should say something like, Solomon turns from the Lord. Solomon wasn't the Messiah. He's not this true son of David that was supposed to come. He turns away from the Lord. He falls and he falls hard and he hits like every branch on the way down. He, he, with every, he goes against his, uh, his woman, his wives go against uh, the Lord and he uh, gets turned from them. He goes into idolatry. It tears the kingdom apart and it eventually exile. By the time the writer of Kings is done with his work, there's no kingdom, there's no land, there's no temple. It's all gone. So I don't think the writer of 1 Kings just wants us to remember how the good old days of Solomon were. I think he knows that there's a pattern set here. There's a type being presented to us here. That Solomon points beyond himself. That he knew God's promises, a covenant that he made with David that Pastor Brian's going to talk about next week. That God was going to bring a son of David that was going to bring about the kingdom. And Solomon here acts as a pattern for that. And here we have the climax of Solomon's kingdom, right before he goes bad. And what's the climax? It's the nations coming in. The queen of Sheba is a foreign ruler. She lives a thousand miles away. She's not a part of God's covenant. She's not a part of Abraham's family, but she's coming in. And it's showing that God's attention all along, not just in the New Testament, even the Old Testament, that God always had a heart to see his fame among the nations. And that's even true all the way back to Abraham. In your family, all the nations will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. You see countless psalms of David where he's calling the nations to worship the Lord. And also see in Deuteronomy chapter 4, if Israel were to keep these rules, it says that the nations would see how great their God was. So here we have the climax. God was not just blessing Israel for Israel's sake. He was blessing Israel so that the nations would come in. So here is a context of 1 Kings 10. It's as if the new creation's breaking into the present age through the king. And that brings the nations. And that's where we go to the king, queen of, uh, the king of Solomon has a, it represents a type, a pattern of who our King Jesus is. 
But the Queen of Sheba in this passage represents a type or a pattern for us in faith. We too are people who do not have any real claim to this king. We are foreigners. We, don't, we belong outside the covenant, but this king invites us in. And he, she shows us a path of, fa- a path of faith, a pattern of faith, uh, that are my four major points tonight. One, we should go to the king. Two, we should behold the king. And three, we should worship the king. And four, we should be blessed by the king. So first we have, we should come to the king. Reading in the first two verses. Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. So the fame of Solomon, all that's happening in Israel couldn't be contained there. It's spreading across the world. And especially in a world where there's no telephones or internet like that, this is amazing that this is happening. Sheba, where is Sheba? That is located in what's modern-day Yemen, a thousand miles south of Israel, on the very tip of the Arabian Peninsula. She hears about this king's fame, that this kingdom is so rich, they're so blessing, but it's not just economic, it's not just political. We hear it's the fame of Solomon, in verse 1, concerning the name of the Lord. There's a God that's behind all of this that's at stake. She's hearing not only the fame of this king, this, it's not a secular king, this is a king that's connected to a God. And she hears about them, and she has hard questions. She could just be like some in Marco Polo's day, the Europeans then, who just say, so it's all made up. Whoever told us that, it's all made up. Or she could just be neutral about it and just shrug and say, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But she knew what was at stake. If there really was a king like Solomon out there, a king that was wise enough to answer all of her questions, a God who was really that powerful among his people, she couldn't afford to miss out on it. And she got that claim. And she didn't send out messengers, which is another weird thing about this text is, Usually royalty didn't come and meet and go on journeys like this. They sent emissaries or ambassadors or messengers, but she does not. She goes herself because she understands what's at stake here if she misses out on this. That the claims were too great and the reward was too great to miss out on. So she goes herself. And that's what brings her to do this. It's not a perfect faith that's causing her to do this. It's, but she has a faith. She's bringing all, it says she brought all this gold in her. She's not coming in with her. She's not coming with uh, the expectation to be disappointed. She's coming with the expectation to learn. There is probably still doubts in her. There, she doesn't know 100% sure, but she goes to this king regardless. She understands the, the consequences if she doesn't. She has questions. I and mean, the Bible doesn't necessarily tell what these questions were, but these questions most likely had to do with Solomon's wisdom which must understand the Bible, wisdom's not just simply math problems or something like that. It's how to live in God's world, how to understand God and be, how to live before him. She was a ruler. She was a queen. She needed to understand how she could rule, how she could live before this God and know him. So this is why she goes, and that's why also we should go to our King, Jesus Christ, because the claim and the fame of Jesus Christ are far greater than Solomon's. If you ever just really understand the gravity of what the church claims about Jesus Christ, that he is the God of the universe that became a baby at Christmas. God in human flesh. He is the God who died on a cross and was raised again. And he now rules over everything. No other ruler has any claim on him. 
He offers abundant life, forgiveness of sins, his own spirit and presence to be with his people. There's a lot of claim. There's a lot of gravity to what Jesus is claiming. And we can't afford to miss out on it. And yet we often do. The queen of Solomon heard about the fame of Solomon and traveled a thousand miles to go see him. But yet we are so slow to see our our Lord Jesus Christ. She traveled a thousand miles, yet it's so hard for us to get up three feet away from our bed in the morning to go get our Bibles and see Jesus in his word, to see, to wrestle and ask our questions to him in prayer, to go to the church and receive the means of grace. We can't afford not to see this king. And even for those of us in seminary, it's so hard to just read books about the Bible rather than actually reading the Bible. I mean, there's so many good books about the Bible, but it's the queen of Sheba could have had someone go, a messenger go and write a book about Solomon, or she could uh, hear Solomon herself. And that's what we need to see. We need to see this king. We need to come to him knowing that he is all that he says he is, with the expectation that he is all he says he is. And if he is all he says, and then he will leave us awestruck. That's what we get to the next uh, point in verses three to five. Behold the king. So she goes to the king to behold the king. In verse 3, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She had asked all of her questions, every single one, Solomon answered all of them all at once. Not one of them stumped him. He answered them clearly, comprehensively, and satisfactorily. He's not like some modern-day politician when asked a hard question. He just goes around it and gives you some other question. He's not like Socrates, the philosopher Socrates. When you asked him a question, he would just ask a question back at you. No, she answered the question. He answered the questions to her. Not one of them could he not answer. He proved to be the true wise king. She also saw not only his wisdom, but his royal splendor. There was not one luxury of a king that he was missing. He was the real deal. He had all these cupbearers, these servants, these fine clothing, and she was in awe of it. But also, let's not overlook that she was in awe of his worship. He, she saw all the offerings that Solomon gave. And Solomon gave, we, we have it multiple listed, that he gave over 100,000 animals at, some, at one time. He offered so much to the Lord. He showed himself to be a devout king, a king who loved God with all of his heart, a king who was devoted to this God, this great God who was the center of it all. So she saw a king who was wise, who was majestic, and a king who was devout. And she was in awe. She couldn't breathe. And how much more so should our reaction be when we see our Lord Jesus Christ? His wisdom far surpasses every single thing that Solomon ever did or wrote about. Jesus Christ is wisdom in a person. Solomon was given wisdom. He had to ask from it from God. But Jesus Christ has wisdom by the fact that he is God. All the wisdom that dwells in the mind, the divine mind, is in Jesus. He didn't, being wisdom is a part of who he is. It's not derived. He never asked for it. He never learned anything. It's all been his. He's called the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 1.30. In Colossians 2.3, it says, In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and uh, 
knowledge are found. And he has, he is the true God. There's so much more found in Christ, the wisdom of Christ, than there is in Solomon or anyone else. Think about his wisdom in creation. The Bible says he created all things. All things were created through him. And all things are sustained through him. Every single thing we see in creation is made by him. All the chemicals and chemistry and physics that like make life possible and your brain work at every single minute are part of his own calculations. He's the one that makes it work. He's the one that made it. He's the one who fine-tuned life in this creation, uh, this life on this earth to such a way that we can keep living. The sun is at the perfect distance that, the, uh, that we can live on this planet. Every th- he, he's above all math, above all science, because he made it all. Math and science work because he wants them to. See, his wisdom in his teaching. No one's ever been a better teacher than our Lord Jesus Christ. At the age of 12, the writer of uh, Luke tells us that he was confounding the Bible scholars at, in Jerusalem. When he was 12 years old, what were you doing when you were 12 years old? I was shooting airsoft gu- guns or something like that. But Jesus was, knew his Bible so well that he could amaze the Bible scholars of his day at the age of 12. Look at his parables, which are forever like stuck in our uh, culture's mind or society's mind, the, the vivid imagery, the literary masterpiece of them. Uh, parables such as the lost shepherd, the uh, good Samaritan, the prodigal son are forever stuck in our brain by his masterful imagery. Yet they contain truths that are so deep that you can take a whole class on, at Southern Seminary just about the parables of Jesus. Such beautiful imagery, but also such deep, deep teaching. Or see his ethics. The Sermon on the Mount has not been paralleled in the world of ethics. Even unbelievers like Gandhi couldn't find a better expression of what they wanted to say sometimes. Where Jesus showed us that real righteousness doesn't come from just doing certain things. It comes from being a certain person. It comes from the heart. Also see Jesus' wisdom in his, uh, of how he's able to teach children and ignorant fishermen at the same time, but also confound all the scribes and Pharisees. At the end of Matthew, Jesus gets uh, asked over and over by all the Bible nerds of his day, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. They're all trying to trip him up. But every time, he answers all their questions and even asks questions that they can't answer. See his wisdom in salvation, where our Savior, our King, understood our problem in such a way that he perfectly came and solved all of our problems. He perfectly redeemed us. He understand what was at the core of the issue, that we have sinned and that we deserve death. He didn't go to peripheral in- issues and try to just solve the easier parts. He went all in. He wanted to save us and save us totally. He saw that every part of us has been affected by sin. So he took on every part of our nature to save us. He, t- he became like us in every way with, except without sin. He took on a human body because the human body was prone to death. He took on the human mind because uh, our mind has been tainted by sin. Everything that we are, he took on himself. He lived the perfect life for us in our place. He taught us how to live before this God and what it meant to love God and love neighbor. He died taking the punishment of sin forever. And he was rose again to reverse the curse that death would never more rise and be a problem for us. He rose again and he sent the Holy Spirit to us so that we may live now in holiness before him. And he's coming back to stamp out every last uh, taint of sin he can find. So 
This, our, Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ and his wisdom has saved us so comprehensively. He, not one thing did he overlook for our salvation. He has saved us totally and finally in his divine wisdom. But also see, his royalty surpasses that of Solomon. He's the king of all kings. He reigns at the right hand of Father. His authority is over all heaven and earth. He has angels in the Bible. If you ever read about angels, they're always so described such vivid and crazy imagery that they're so high and exalted. But these, he has legions and thousands upon thousands of them ever ready to do his bidding. He has every, he has servants from every tribe and nation under his command who are ready to lay down his, their life for him. This king is outclassed Solomon in every way, even in his worship also. Jesus by his one offering, offered way more to God than Solomon did by his hundreds of thousands of offerings. By Christ's one offering of himself, he showed that he truly loved God with all of his soul, with all of his strength, with all of his might. And unlike Solomon, his love and devotion for God was permanent. There's no 1 Kings chapter 11 for Jesus. Jesus always uh, followed God. He never once turned away from him, and he will never turn away from God. So this is the king that should take our breath away. The king who has such divine wisdom, wisdom in creation, wisdom in his teaching, wisdom in our salvation, a royal splendor of the king of all kings, and a devotion to the Lord that is unmatched. This is the king that we should be coming to, to behold him, to see him so that we may be awestruck, just like the queen of Sheba, and also so that we may worship. Which brings us to point three. We come to the king, or we come to the king to behold the king, to point three, to worship the king. In verse six, starting in verse six to verse 11. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land and of your words and of your wisdom. But and I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord God who has delighted in you and set you on your throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and she gave uh, a very great, great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again has such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to king of Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Haram, which brought the gold of Ophir, brought the gold of Ophir, a great, very, uh, a very great amount of almug wood in precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and the, for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood had come or been seen to this day. So now she comes to the king. After she catches her breath, she declares all the king's majesty, all the king's glory, and she worships in a way. She sees Solomon's greatness, that he was everything she expected and heard, but, he, but the, actually the reports had undersold Solomon. She hadn't even heard the half of how great Solomon was. And that's even more true of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, when we come to him and those who know him, love him, know that he is great, but you can never under, uh, oversell Jesus Christ. We never get to the bottom of just how glorious he really is. Uh, and that's because he's infinite. You can't grasp infinity. 
there's always going to be something new and glorious we don't know about Jesus Christ. You can get the oldest saint in this room who knows, has been with Christ his whole life, who's studied his Bible, who's heard all the sermons, and who's sung all the hymns, and he could only tell you the half of how great our Lord Jesus Christ is, that he surpasses everything. Even the writer of John has to admit he couldn't get everything in his book. The great gospel of John, probably the clearest picture of Jesus we have. He writes at the end of the gospel saying, I couldn't contain all that Jesus said and do. And not even the world can contain all the books that would be written if we said everything that Jesus said it did. He is so glorious that not even the Bible in all of its inerrancy and inspiration can't even comp- uh, hold every good thing there is about him. The Bible has everything we need to know about him, but it's not everything. The fact that this Bible doesn't have an infinite number of pages shows that. And that's where we're looking forward to in the new heavens and new earth. Um, when I was a kid, I used to think that heaven is going to be so boring. It's going to just be up there super nice. It's going to be nice not crying anymore and all that stuff. But it's going to get a little boring singing praise on a cloud all day. But that's because when I was a kid, I misunderstood who was there. I didn't fully realize who's the center of heaven. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is so great and beautiful there There won't be any repetition. We'll be forever finding out new reasons to worship him. It won't get boring because King Jesus is there. He's never boring. In my time at seminary, there's been some topics I've kind of gotten bored with. I'm tired of hearing about the end times and maybe sometimes about how free will works with everything. But there's one topic I can't ever uh, get bored with, and that's the topic of Jesus Christ. All that he is, he's fully God, fully man, and all those implications of who he is and what he's done, it's never boring. There's always new nuggets of gold to be found there. We can be in heaven for thousands upon thousands of years, and there's still a treasure trove of glories and majesties to be found and uncovered. We'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never even know the half of all the goodness of Jesus Christ. And that's what this is showing uh, here, that Solomon, no report could do him justice, and even more so, no report can do our Lord Jesus Christ justice. And then she sees in chapter, uh, in verse not 8, that her, the servants are happy, that those who are ever before his presence are happy servants. They are, hear his words, and they are happy about it because they understand who their king is. They listen to his words, and this causes her to worship and see all great, how great Solomon is. Yet so much in Christ's church can also often be not happy. We also can be depressed or even angry, but I think that's because we forgot who we're in the presence of right now. We forgot that this, uh, the king who's over us. We don't, we're not continually in his presence. We're not listening to his words. And if we're doing that, we'll find that our faith has changed, that we can be happy, happy in Jesus. Because Psalm 16, uh, 11, verse 11 says that in the presence of the Lord, there is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Where Jesus is, by definition, joy and pleasure are there also. And we just have to believe and come and behold that to get that. So we can be happy in him. And then also in verse 9, she blesses the God. She blesses the one true God. She becomes a worshiper. This woman was probably a pagan when she first came. She probably didn't, she maybe didn't not believe in the Lord of Israel, but she probably believed him among a very, a lot of different gods. But now she confesses with her tongue that the Lord is God. She uses his covenant name. She knows this God now is true because she's seen this king. 
and she became a worshiper. But how did she become a worshiper? What changed this woman, this foreigner, into a worshiper of the one true God of Israel? It's because she beheld the king in his beauty. Once she saw that king, saw the Messiah, she couldn't help but become a worshiper. She had her breath taken away, and the first word that comes after is worship. And that's because the king and his beauty makes people into worshipers instantly. Because the king is so good, if you just get a glance, a glimpse of who he is, you can't help but worship. And I think the queen here, we can say, is converted. And I think that's how Jesus understood her too. That she is one of the great uh, uh, Gentile saints of the Old Testament. She often doesn't get talked about that way, but she is, she becomes a worshiper of the one true God, and let this be encouragement also to our evangelism. Our evangelism isn't, we can't ever oversell or undersell Jesus Christ. He's so great that all it takes is for God to open our, the eyes of someone's heart, to see him in his glory, that it's enough for someone to become a worshiper. We don't have to come up with strategic plans, uh, great events. We just have to show people this king and pray that God, that the Holy Spirit would work in them to reveal his son to them. And they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's over. They're worshipers now. They become a worshiper in an instant. There's no such thing as an unlikely convert. Someone just has to see this king to love him and worship him. And then that brings us to uh, chap, uh, verse 10, and verses, uh, verse 10 to uh, 12, where this queen not only just speaks how much she uh, loves this king and loves this kingdom and loves this God, she puts her money where her mouth is. She gives to the king. Now Solomon, if you read in verse 14, he got 666 talents of gold in a year. That's how much he got a year. So the queen's 120 talents was not very much to him. He didn't need the queen's gift but he accepted it anyway because it showed who the queen, the queen's devotion. It showed her love. It showed who she thought was really king. She's giving him tribute as her king. And she's putting her money where their mouth is. And that's what real worship does. It's not only speaking about the goodness of God, it's doing it. Can you really love someone without giving them something? Can you really love your wife or your spouse or your friends if you don't ever give them something? whether it be your tongue or your time or your words or your comfort or your presence or yes, even giving them actual gifts. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That what we do with our money shows where our heart is. That it shows who our real king is. And the queen does not just bless Solomon and leave, she gives him something. And that's also what verses 11 and 12, they seem kind of random uh, in this passage, but it's getting to the same point. I mean, who the heck is Haram? Haram is the king of Tyre, another foreign Gentile king who is giving Solomon tribute. Not the, all the kings and the queens of the nations are giving to Solomon. And even especially in the case of Haram, we see that he's giving and to support the Lord's glory in the temple, that the nations are becoming uh, getting in on the glory of God, be getting in on what God's fame and glory among the nations. And that's what we're called to do too. If we really love God, we, have to, we will give to his mission. He doesn't need us. He owns everything, yet he accepts our gifts so that we might become a part of his mission. And that's one of my favorite things about being at Fisherville is I see year after year at the Lottie Moon and uh, the other times that you guys have given thousands of thousands of dollars to the missionary efforts so that Women like the Queen of Sheba can hear about the fame of Jesus Christ and come to believe him, that you guys have been such a great encouragement in that. And I encourage you to do that all the more. 
And that also brings us to our last point. Come to the king to behold the king, to worship the king. The lastly, to be blessed by the king. It, it, costs, it can be cost a lot for Queen Sheba to do this. She took probably 21 days at least to do, take this trek there and back. She was a queen after all. Uh, There's a lot of valuable things she could be doing at the time. It cost her 120 talents of gold. It looks like this cost her a lot of money and a lot of time. But it turns out, in verse 13 shows us, that she, it was actually for a prophet, reading in verse 13, the king Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked besides that was given to her by the bounty of Solomon, King Solomon, so she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. She ended up being blessed by the king. Every desire she had, Solomon gave it to her. And it, I can make it sound like it's very costly to be Christian. It, it is. It'll cost maybe your life. It'll cost money. It'll cost uh, your devotion and your time. But it's worth it because our king, the king that we go to, is a blessing king. He, he's not a stingy king who just takes and takes and takes, demands and demands and demands. He's a generous king. He's ever ready to share his blessings. He wants his people to prosper. And that's where the prosperity gospel gets things so distorted and messes things so up, up so much. The other day, or I was watching uh, a Q&A with Kanye West and Joel Osteen. And he went to his church, and they were talking about it. And Kanye West said, the reason people don't, the reason other Christians don't like Joel Osteen is because uh, Joel Osteen shows how good God is. And, and I can somewhat understand that. Some of us who are against the prosperity gospel can sound like we're against Joel Osteen because we think God's just this mean guy who wants us to suffer and suffer over and over. But no, our King Jesus is not like that. The prosperity gospel, the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it's not prosperous enough. The, the blessings that it gives are terrible in comparison to the real blessing God gives us. It, the prosperity gospel offers us temporal junk when we have eternal treasures from Jesus Christ. We have a king who's ever ready to give us and bless us. He gives us his spirit, his very own spirit to always be with us so that we can live life before him in love. He gives us uh, uh, his, uh, the, he gives us his self ultimately so that we can, he protects us. He's our good king. He gives us his word that, that we can, have all the precious promises for every season in life. He gives us everything that he is, and he also promises an eternal heavens and earth, an eternal inheritance. Not just new Mustangs or cars or mansions that uh, will just rot away. He offers us real and true blessings. He tells us to come to himself, to worship him and behold him, so that he may bless us. It's for our good. He's offering us all that he is. And that brings us to a close there. That Solomon uh, was all that Queen Sheba wanted. She, he, she got blessed by him. She came to him. She uh, beheld his glory. And she uh, worshipped him. And she was blessed by him. But there's also a warning from the Queen of Sheba that the Lord Jesus gives. So we see her pattern of faith. But let's lastly listen to the warning that she gives, that our Lord Jesus gives in Matthew 12, verse 42. When Jesus is speaking to a crowd of unbelieving people who are constantly asking for signs, just refusing to believe in them, this is what our Lord Jesus says in Matthew 12, 42. 
the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So we see her pattern, but we also see the warning. This is not the last time we will see the queen of Sheba. In the last day, the last day of judgment, she will be there to condemn all of those who do not come to this king. She will be just awestruck that there's people out there who exist who heard about a king greater than Solomon, a king that out surpassed them in every conceivable way that they didn't even lift a finger to go to them, go to him. She's going to rise up in judgment, and there's not going to be any pity with her. So we see the pattern of her faith, but also the warning that if you have seen and heard about the fame of our Lord Jesus Christ and you do not come to him, there is judgment. And let us, that threat, that uh, threat, that warning c- cause us to follow her pattern, to go to King Jesus, to behold him in all of his glory and splendor and to worship him and be blessed by him because he is the true God. And once we understand who this king is, idols will, won't have the power over us that we do. We'll see them for what they are, false gods, false everything. They don't live up to it. They always fall under expectations. But here in Jesus, in Jesus alone, is someone who always meets expectations, someone who meets it every single time. You'll never be disappointed with the Lord Jesus if you come to him in faith, in truth. He is all that he says he is and more. We'll never get to the bottom of how great he is. So when idols are coming in our life, such as lust or entertainment or any other things, we can say no to them. I have a better king, someone who meets every single time, expectation every single time. And when we come to that king, we'll be blessed by him and we'll be happy in him. So let's see the uh, Queen of Sheba's pattern, but also her warning. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that just a glimpse of your son was revealed tonight through my poor words that just anyone in here just got a a mere glance at our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he is enough to satisfy any heart, to make us happy in him, to bless us. Lord, I pray that you would help us this week as we fight against the temptations of idols, that we would turn away from them, turn away from all sin, knowing that we have a better and true king that will always satisfy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.